3: Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. We've got loads lined up today. Some teams of 2022 to talk about the women's under-19 World Cup. More man chat. Another T20 league has emerged and Virat Kohli is good again. I'm Yazrana and with me today is Phil Walker, Joe Harmon and Cassia Whitney. Mark Butcher will be joining us later in the show. He insisted that we talked about man by the way, so you've got that to look forward to. Let's kick off with those teams of the year in the new issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly that is out on Thursday this week. There is the WCM Test Team of 2022 and the Women's Team of 2022. Joe, how was the team selected?
4: So we had, we've been doing this for like five years maybe, I think, a year off for, for the COVID year. Uh, and each time we've gone to a panel of writers and broadcasters from across the game and asked them to send in their... They're 11. We did that again this year. we got 31 on our panel, which I think is the biggest ever. And then I'll tally up the votes, check them again, and uh, stick the team in the magazine.
3: So the team is Usman Khawaja, Craig Brathwaite, Manus Lavashane, Babra Johnny Besto, Ben Stokes, Rishabh Pant, Marco Jansen, Pat Cummins, Nathan Lyon, and James Anderson. I really like that Brathwaite's in it. I didn't actually pick him myself, but he averaged over 60 this year, 100 in Australia, got that record-breaking... <laughs> knock against England. Only Greenwich, Haynes and Gale have more runs opening the batting for West Indies than him. And he's only turned 30 last month, which I couldn't quite believe. He's also also
1: rather tragically the only West Indian player in the top 50 run scorers for the calendar year 2022. So the 50th comes in with about 200 and something runs. Brathwaite is well up that list and there is nobody behind him. Nobody to help him, nobody to support him.
3: The feature isn't just that list of 11 players. There are two profiles in particular that are interesting. So Taha did something on Azam, and Dan Gallon did something on Marco Janssen.
1: Taha's was excellent. He went to Pakistan to, to see family, not just for us. We didn't send him out there for this. <laughs> oh, those were the good, days. Good freelance gig, isn't it? <laughs> those were the days. Taha was superb to try and unpick the mystery, the enigma of Um And as you say, yeah, Dan Gallon did a very good piece, kind of a pertinent piece really on uh, Janssen as well where he raised the point that while he absolutely deserves a place in this side, the question has to be whether he will ever feature in another one, certainly in the next three or four years, because as we know, South Africa aren't really playing too much Test cricket. Yeah, and this cropped
4: up a couple of times through the list. Phil's mini profile of Brathwaite touched on the same things, and it's unavoidable when you pick a team like this that some players have significantly more opportunity to get in there than others, and we don't pretend the team is fair because you know we don't control the schedule. England and Australia make up seven of the 11 this year, and you know they both had very good years, so it's it's not hugely surprising, but that is also because they play so many more games and if you're weighing up, say, Chandamal for Sri Lanka, who's got an amazing record last year, I think he averaged over 100, yeah, uh, yeah. played what we picked as the innings of the year against Australia at Gaul, but actually when you're weighing him up against someone who scored... Thousand plus runs, it's it's hard to go with him. I actually did in my eleven, just just, but um, he he picked up a handful of votes, but wasn't that close to being in the team.
3: And also, Prabath Jayasuriya versus Nathan Lyon. Nathan Lyon, I think he ended the year as the leading wicket taker, but Prabath Jayasuriya only played like three Test matches, but <laughs> did really well in those three Test matches.
4: Absolutely, and again, Lyon just bowled so many more overs. I mean, Jack Leach actually was the I think the leading. Uh, no, Lyon overtook him, didn't he? But Le- Leach wasn't far behind. But again, mm. played so many games that. In his case, you couldn't really consider him because the average was a bit high.
3: There was also the cross-format women's team of the year, which was uh, Mandana, Healy, Wolfart Mooney, Harmon, Harmanpreet, Kerr, McGrath, Deepti Sharma at nine, Sophie Eccleston and Shabnim Ismail. Plenty of batting in there. Plenty of batting. I was going to say, that- that's a team that's got all bases covered. I guess with a cross-format team with the World Cup, that's quite. Did you put more emphasis on that when you asked for people to give their selections?
4: Yeah, well, Alyssa Healy is a decent example in that she didn't actually have a particularly good year. She was injured for some of it, but her performances in the World Cup, particularly see the semi-final and then the final, were so good that she she couldn't be overlooked really. Whilst the men's team felt like a kind of team in flux, perhaps reflecting the change in in Test cricket over the last year, with India not being quite so dominant. Uh, the women's team felt more like more of the same. There were six of the players that appeared uh, in in last year's team as well. Uh, just three for the men's, so it felt like there was kind of more consistency there. But there was some, yeah, some. It's good to see some new names coming through.
2: Nice to see not a ridiculous amount of Australians as well.
4: Yeah. That's true, actually. I don't know if that... I think there probably would have been one or two more Australians last year. So, yeah, it's nice to see that, that balance.
3: Katie, mm. um, on last week's pod, we talked a little bit about the T20 World Cup coming up and we kind of assessed where England are compared to Australia and India. How do you see England compared to those two with uh, just a few weeks until the tournament?
2: Pretty much the same. They're, I think they're the third best team. And I think if you look at the under-19 World Cup, some of India's players are getting some nice warm-ups in South Africa before the tournament. It's difficult, though, because whenever you go into... A women's ICC tournament, there's always this assumption that it's going to be Australia will win it. India and England will fight for the second place in the final. Um And it's really hard to see this tournament being any different, really. Mm. It feels a bit muted, almost, the build up to the tournament as well. I guess maybe that is because people are getting a little bit like, well, Australia are going to win it. But yeah, that's kind of how I see it. I think
3: somehow more than 50% of the questions we got this week were about man I think there was only one since the last podcast, and that was the one in the under nineteen World Cup. Some were I wouldn't say really interesting, but they're probably as interesting as you can get on Mancads. But we're not going to read them out because there were there were so many of them. Even
1: from, from your old tutor, yeah,
3: that's that's from a from a podcast maybe a year or so ago. He got in touch. Mm. Um, uh, and also, it was quite football-heavy that one. I think more than half it was about no, that football. No, that was the one I read from <laughs> start to finish. But as I said at the top, Butch insisted that we talked about mancads. So here he is on them and the IL T20, the newest T20 competition uh, that's being held in the UAE at the moment. Mancads, yay or nay?
0: <laughs> Run outs at the non-striker's end—we we ought to call them.
3: Apparently, the Mancad family came out this week saying that they are now okay with it.
0: No, well, no, I was saying I was I was basically disagreeing with them. I thought the whole the whole subject is based around you completely disagreeing with it being a fifty-fifty split between what you think is right and what you think is wrong. So I just thought I'd go against the family. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. No, I don't think it's quite right. Actually, you know the the, the man uh, the man should be. Um, should be sort of sent to cricketing Mount Rushmore for it because it's because uh, it certainly um, it certainly cause and will forevermore cause uh, an enormous amount of can I say piss boiling I've done it there you go um, <laughs> and will and will do forevermore it amuses me this whole thing because I, I'm I'm kind of ambivalent about it one way or the other there are some that you are kind of were so evangelical about about this including the Indian cricket team I thought. Uh, until such a time as they decided that it wasn't that important after all, when if the bloke was on ninety eight and you'd already won the game, um, which made me laugh so loud. I kind of uh, the, the thing, I guess the thing in my head is that the way that people go on about about this, you know, batsmen should stay in their crease, duh, 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 this is all very simple. It is not an emotive issue. It is. I'm sorry, there's nothing you you're, you can do. you cannot you cannot turn around um people's um emotions around. Uh, around whether they think this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, any more than you can turn around um, people's emotions about whether you should walk or you know wh- other, whatever the other emotion emotive issues there are in, in cricket, or whether or not sort of blue passports are going to be more valuable to you than um, being able to visit and trade your nearest partners, neighbours for the rest of your life. You know, some people will say that it's important. Some people will say that it well, it's not. The thing that that, make, that is most bizarre about this for me is that it, 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 the argument is coming from a place whereby the game must have been horrendous. The game must have been almost unplayable before when when batters were sort of wandering out of their ground with impunity. <laughs> you know, the absent-minded millimetre backing up a little bit too early. It destroyed the game as, as a spectacle up until this point. But now the Cape Crusaders of, of uh, men's and women's cricket who are going to whip the bales off as soon as anybody so uh, so much as dares to leave their ground a saving, saving a sport that was uh, that was being ruined, ravaged by this um, this horrendous crime of uh, of absentmindedly leaving your crease. Um, yeah, I suppose the other side of it is is that I can I completely understand the, the argument that you know just stay in your crease. You have no right to sort of wander out of the ground, or if you do, you take the risk of being run out. I understand that too. Um, the other thing I do not understand is there's people who then decide to make an equivalence with it being the same as a stumping. Well, it's not it's not the same as a stumping because the ball is not in play yet it might be live but it's not in play the stumping is affected because the bowler has deceived the batsman into falling out of his ground or the batsman has made a rash decision charging out out of his crew um the the the, the mancat is not has not been affected by by skill from anybody else because the game essentially hasn't started yet and I suppose you could make the argument that fielders shouldn't be allowed to shouldn't be allowed to walk in until the b- bowlers left let go of the ball if you know we are, we are so set on the idea that the ball is live from the moment the the, uh, the, the uh, or the that the, the that no one should gain any sort of movable advantage until the bowlers has actually left the bowler's hand so there's another another piece of it for you but I, I totally agree that people who are taking the Mickey um had deserved to to get run out. And I also agree that when Josh Butler got knocked over by who was it? Was it Ash was it Ashwick? Of course it was Ashwin. You know, having having already given him a bit of a heads up that it was that it was coming, it was it was the daftest thing that I've ever seen. So um look, I, I think is I don't care about it either way. I just really, really enjoy watching other people get steamed up about it.
3: Yeah, I guess I have two points on it. One, I think the reason why people get get quite riled up about it is because the way the game was played forever even though it's been in the laws is that you don't really do that and it is now coming to the point where it is broadly accepted and i just don't think people like change i think it's as simple as that and then number two uh, whilst i I'm, I'm completely fine with it being in the laws and i'm fine with players doing it i think sometimes when it's been done in the past you can tell by the players who have done it that they themselves are not fine with it so for Example with the Dick D. Sharma Charlie Dean run out at Lords, that was to win a game at Lords, a very close game at Lords, and there were no mass celebrations around it. And Charlie Dean was out of her crease about 50 times before that ball. So, if you think it's fine, why don't you do that the first time? But <laughs> why
0: don't you do it? Why don't you do it first ball of the game? You know? Exactly,
3: exactly. But I do think what we're seeing now and the one in the under 19 World Cup the other day, for example is that players are seeing it as a more legitimate way of taking a wicket. So they are doing it the first time they see someone leave their ground. There have been a couple in the BBL over the last few days where players have sought to do it at the first available opportunity. And I'm actually more pro that than I am seeing it Not being done until the last possible point. Not being
0: done until the until the game is right on the line. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, that's always been another another sort of side point for me is that that if it was as legitimate a a dismissal as any other, then why why is it that it only seems to happen when there's a one run to win and the last ball of the game? Either. That's the infamous example from the West, the uh, the West Indies against Zimbabwe back in the Under Nineteen World Cup, and so you know, so there, therein is where where it sort of leaves a pretty nasty taste. I think the other the other side of this is that we're looking at it through very much through the prism of professional cricket, or at least cricket that is either being televised or is um you know is, is sort of is is subject to um subject to sort of some behavioural norms, at least that the behaviour that that, it, that comes with. whole game being you know scrutinized by a worldwide audience at least what is not being talked about is the the effect that this um is likely to have on village greens on sunday mornings and sunday afternoons up and down the country if this starts to become um much more the norm um and you can argue to the to your blue in the face that it's in the laws and you're perfectly within your rights to do so but as as I, i may have may have used this analogy before about something else but it it's a, it's around about the, the sort of the idea that um you know you you're, you're absolutely within your rights to to sleep with your with your best mates um ex-wife um minutes after they they've split up but don't don't complain if you get punched in the face for it um mm. you know <laughs> and uh, you know you kind of i I can just see absolute carnage happening up and down this land and many others if uh, mm. if people start start doing it um, uh, sort of as as a matter of course in club games because mm-hmm. there as I said there is there's very little sort of regulation in terms of people's behaviour there um, and, and the game um, as it is played and has been played for, for years and years and years with sort of you know with umpire guys umpiring their own players and all that type of thing there's a, the game is always played on this sort of basis that there will be a bit of there will be good sportsmanship, otherwise we will not be sharing jugs in the bar type thing. Mm. Um, mm. and if this thing and if this starts this this starts happening up and down the land, there will be, there will be blood. I'm telling you of that now.
3: If the MANCAD debate brings out people's emotive sides, the ILT twenty tournament in Dubai probably doesn't yet. That's one of four T twenty franchise competitions happening at the moment. There's the Bangladesh Premier League, the Big Bash, the SA twenty, and now this. What have you made of it? Because I've actually quite enjoyed the SA competition. Uh, Big crowds, lots of young domestic players who we've not seen a whole lot of before doing really well and actually being some of the stars of the tournament so far. That can't quite be said about the ILT20. That seems to have quite a lot of money behind it. There are no fans. There aren't that many domestic players. Um, The game going on at the moment, I think, has eight English players playing in it, which is good from a selfish point of view, but it is also quite weird
0: the whole thing is is, is pretty weird. Um, you know the, on the one hand the, the T20 cricket was brought in, in in England what was it back in 2003 to kind of bring fans back to the game and its, it's entire raison d'etre has been to to get people into grounds to get people out there watching live cricket again and obviously you do that it, it, the knock-on effect is that television companies want to put it on and it, and it creates revenue etc etc and that's kind of you know the sole purpose behind it there was no, nothing else there was no other reason um and so when you put on what is now um the second most lucrative t20 tournament in the world the, the sort of like the the top rate for for players there is 450000 us making it sort of second behind the, the the ipl in terms of money that can be earned by the players uh, and when you add to that the fact that you can have nine overseas players playing in your team because the UAE, um, it, it's not being that it isn't a, a, a full member. Um, the stats don't actually count to, towards anything. But also, there is no necessity for there to be um, any more than two UAE players in any, any one of the six teams at any point. And as you rightly say, there's nobody in the grounds. It's kind of like, well, what and who is this for? I think we can take a, a pretty good guess. <laughs> it's come from obviously it comes from, from TV revenues, it might come from one or two other places. But um it certainly isn't there to please any sort of fan base. Um and uh, and of course what it what it is doing is it's sucking players in from you know the super smashes on at the moment, the big blash league has, has got to been decimated as it as it tends to the last two or three seasons in its second half with players leaving to go and do other more lucrative things. Uh, when you add to the fact that the South Africa thing is happening at the same time as well, you've kind of got this, this drain of, um, you know, the, of, of full members uh, T20 competitions happening at the moment. So not only is, is T20 Sucking players away from international cricket is starting to suck players away from T20 cricket as well.
3: And I think you made the point before that when there's this much money around in competitions outside of the IPL, people are increasingly going to view the English summer. English players are going to increasingly view parts of the English summer as that's the time to take a break, actually. Because they can make so much money in the winter and we're not we're not talking centrally contracted players, we're talking players
0: below that. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the again, one of the sort of our our shining lights, I suppose, one of the big the big saving points always for English cricket is the Northern Hemisphere summer. Um, you know, that we haven't even talked about the about major league cricket yet in, in the States. I mean that potentially is another um another drain on on players from our side of the world because it is, you know, it's Northern, it's Northern Hemisphere summer and doubtless there will be an enormous amount of cash flying around in there as well, which will sort of dwarf the, the hundreds. What is it? 120 grand top, top rate, whatever for the, the sort of top players in the hundred it doesn't even compete, doesn't even compute. So, um, yeah, there, there's, I mean, I suppose that the other side of it is you can, you could say, well, how, how is it possible? How is it sustainable that the, something that seemingly creates no revenue of its own via you know fans or, um, or or people buying tickets to come into grounds or buying hospitality to be in grounds how, how does something like that last um, I guess it remains to be seen
3: well cheers for your time butch catch you later
0: yeah no problem
3: Samuel asks have the ilt20 organizers forced rahan Ahmed into opening the batting simply to force you guys to discuss it every week and then Jamie asks, James Vince, Rahan Ahmed and Ollie Pope. England's Ashes top three, question mark. Uh, that is the top three for the Gulf Giants in the ILT20. Yesterday, chased down 183. Vince scored 83 of 56. Rahan scored 28 of 17, including one enormous six. Ravi Bapara-esque. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I thought. thought that as well. Yeah, yeah. This then, kid is going to break my heart into <laughs> a million pieces. Uh, and then Ollie Pope got a first baller. Earlier in the game, Joe Root opened the batting with Robin Utapur. Uh, and they put on 71 for the first wicket. Joe Root scored six of those 71 runs before being run out by James Vince. It is just a bizarre tournament, and I can almost feel that if you're not sure what cricket's happening in the world, you can probably make a safe bet that James Vince is going all right <laughs> in a B-tier T20, and probably captaining someone. <laughs> yeah, He's somebody. captaining all the time. <laughs> Katia, you did a piece for the website where you worked out that there were 60 English players. Who've played in T twenty competitions over the last month or so?
2: Sixty. It's quite a process, I'm not gonna lie. Um (laughs) Who put you up to that? Gardner. Ben Gardner, it
1: wasn't me. (laughs) No, Yes wouldn't do that.
2: Classic
3: Gardner. What kind of stood out most for you in that list?
2: That Josh Cobb is currently the only player in the BPL and all the other English players have left and gone to other (laughs) franchise comps. So he's
3: the only one left. Okay.
4: So Andrew Miller, columnist for the magazine, also did his research. He could have maybe saved you a job here, but he, he estimated that more than seventy players uh, are employed across nine franchise tournaments this winter. So that's he says that's one fifth of the county payroll.
2: Are we going to have a dispute on stats of how many English players are currently playing franchise leagues? And if he says 70? you and
4: you and Miller can fight out between you, <laughs> but but his point my money's was, <laughs> on you. By the way, <laughs> Miller uses that as the as the basis for a column, really he's talking about the, the debt that world cricket owes county cricket. Um, You know, the the much maligned domestic game over here is producing so many players And, and obviously seen with the IPO auction that English talent is right at the top of the queue at the moment.
3: Well, there's pretty much then as many English players playing franchise cricket at the moment as there are Australian players currently playing the Big Bash.
4: Also, I think of preseason training must be pretty grim if you're left behind yeah. as well. I mean, not the best at the best of times, <laughs> but that's not going to be a fun experience, is yeah. it? Must you're, be about three people here at Surrey.
1: You're on the front line of this stuff, yes. What's I'm your... not sure what that means. What, I, what <laughs> I mean is that, you know, you as kind of joint runner, boss of the website and so on, That you, you're, it's sort of incumbent on you to be across, as they say, all of these tournaments or the majority of these tournaments. What's your own relationship with this stuff? How do you manage it? How do you manage your weeks and how engaged can you can you get?
3: Early days, I am quite into the South African competition. Well, it's
1: good quality, right? It's
3: good quality, but, but so is the UAE one, to be fair. But the big difference is you've got local players you've never heard of who are doing well. Local players who you might have heard of, but you've not seen that much of doing well. Um, and you've got fans, there's good good crowds yeah. turning up. Whereas this UE co- UAE competition, there's basically no one there. There are some people there, it's better than the Abu Dhabi T10 but not a huge amount cricket in the UAE is pretty soulless at the best of times even when there was a world cup there even when there was an IPL there it's extremely soulless for a competition where it's quite hard to work out what the point is other than for some people who you don't see to make a lot of money yeah. I mean I can't see how it's sustainable to be playing paying people upwards of half a million pounds for a competition that I don't it just cannot have that many eyeballs yeah
1: it's, it's pretty grotesque you're right about the South Africa tournament that makes sense in the ecosystem, it makes sense that that should be taking place. And it's unfortunate that it's necessarily sort of foregrounded in, in South African cricket. But you understand why, due to their financial uh, tribulations. Uh, and they have managed to round up some good cricketers there. And so there is a, a genuine sort of variety of, of talent that you, that you can easily latch onto. And as you say, there is an atmosphere, certainly the games that I've seen, there is a, there's a point to it.
3: We had a question last week on kind of what are our th- thoughts on these leagues happening at the same time. I actually don't mind it because you've almost got this mini window now where it's just, you get four of the leagues out of the way at once.
4: It's bad news for the ILT20 though, isn't it? Because mm. I think that probably would get a bit more respect if, and more eyeballs if the South African one wasn't happening at the same time. But there is this ongoing battle to, to see who's, well not who's top of the queue because the IPL runs that. But, where everyone else fits in and if you're the second best T20 tournament that's going on at that time then it's going to be hard to to summon a huge amount of respect for that league
3: and it's not even just the second best T20 competition it's the second best T20 competition with significant IPL investment you've got IPL team names in both of those competitions which is quite strange
1: and my boy Grant Roloffson made his first 50 for so the, the Mumbai team? hmm. The Cape Town Mumbai yeah, Indians. Yeah. Is that what
3: they're called? MI. I think, I'm not sure they're supposed to say they're the Mumbai Indians, but they are MI branded.
1: Right. MI Cape Town. That trips off the tongue. Doesn't and, it? Um, anyway, my boy made, made a 50-odd.
3: And and George Linda, my boy, also yes. of MI Cape Town fame, is, yeah. is going well as well. Basically our village team, isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> Pretty made much, with, H- with Archer and Rashid Khan. Yeah, but well, that's the thing, that.
2: isn't it? When you have those four, there's a real thinning of talent that comes across the T20 competitions that maybe don't pay as much or mm. aren't as attractive or in attractive places. So whilst, yes, it is quite nice on a freezing day to have some nice cricket on all day, seamlessly, BBL in the morning, SAT twenty, ILT twenty, SAT twenty. Seamlessly, the quality of cricket does kind of get affected.
3: Mm,
1: definitely. Um, You've probably talked about this in previous weeks, but Big Bash is reducing its number of games and the time in which it takes place from next year, in, in large part, I think, because yeah. of the the talent drain from Australia to the more lucrative. Leagues now now springing up in Australia, in South Africa and, and people and losing interest as well. Though, right? There there I is that. that as as the hundred works out what it wants to be in years to
4: come. The big bash should be a cautionary tale, which is odd because that was what sort of inspired all this in the first place. But you know, less is more is 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 often the way to go. Yeah,
3: there are some very fun aspects of the ILT Twenty though. Uh, so Manish writes in to say you must talk about the fact that the ILT Twenty has a WWE style belt for the leading run scorer. Purple and orange caps are dead to me. I want Harry Brooke to walk out dressed as Triple H at the IPL. Have you seen this? No. So, uh, Robin Utepa is the leading run scorer in the i l T20 at the moment. Show me a picture. And I'll put it in the reply to, to the tweet plugging the pod. And he's got this massive WWE style belt. <laughs> doesn't it get in the way him. of your, your batting? No, he doesn't. I don't <laughs> think he wears it when he bats. Um, oh, right. Okay. Um, so, you just parade <laughs> it you? <off. laughs> uh, yeah. I think... Not for this week, but for next week, we should definitely have a bit on the pod where we talk about if we were coming up with our own brand new T20 competition, what weird gimmicks would we have? Because, like, the SA20 on the, fir- the first commentary stint in the, S- in the SA20 was Mark Nicholas and A.B. Villiers commentating from a bench on the side. So they couldn't really see what was going on <laughs>
1: and they hadn't got the it's audio quality work. It, no,
3: it didn't, didn't stop Mark. Fake beard?
1: Um, pardon? Fake beard? Massive fake beard. For, for the highest for all players, okay. or <laughs> <Highest> <laughs> run score at any one time, you've got to wear a massive fake beard and one of those pretend nose and glasses, like combos. a pirate, pirate costume or a pirate costume. That, work. Yeah. that will work. Um, completely naked, entirely naked, um, But say for a jock strap, maybe, maybe. Um, you, you asked. I,
3: I, was, I was hoping that we'd have more time to think about this <laughs> for next week, so anyway, I've got a, a funny story about the ILT20. Um, so no, my mum is in was in Dubai last week coming back from Pakistan. And um, so she doesn't know any cricketers. So she won't know who Ben Stokes and Joe Root are, won't know what they look like. But she was um, sitting in like a hotel cafe and got talking to Dan Lawrence's girlfriend and managed to clock that Dan Lawrence was there for some kind of cricket tournament. And we exchanged a few WhatsApps and it ended with me getting a voice note from Dan Lawrence's girlfriend confirming that she is Dan Lawrence's girlfriend um, well well here is that voice note now <laughs> you're actually playing it
1: yeah
2: <laughs> hi Yasin it's Liddy Dan's girlfriend I'm with your mum. she's so lovely <laughs> and I'm glad that you know Dan
1: <laughs> it's, it's kind of got a lost in translation sort of vibe <laughs> that two drifters you know just just in some random you know empty bar
3: Two very unlikely companions, unlikely very weird, companions. But, but with something in common. You know, exactly. I've, I've interviewed Dan. Exactly. Um, we recently launched our limited edition pure wool cricket sweaters. The sweater was designed by British specialists. Crystal Knitwear, who are the official supplier of wool cricket sweaters for all MCC teams and the official Lords online shop. Um, The sweaters are are very, very good. Only limited stock is available. So don't miss out on the perfect gift for any cricketer this year. The first ever Women's Under-19 World Cup started this week. It's a T20 competition featuring 16 teams, including some you don't normally see at big ICC events like Indonesia and rwanda Uh, katya your moment of the week is from this competition
2: yeah bangladesh beat australia in the first game well not the first game on the first day of the competition which as i said earlier everyone's so used to australia turning up and just dominating everything um it was quite nice to see a rare australia loss to be honest and they didn't just beat them narrowly they limited them to 130 and chased it down within 18 overs so it's a proper a proper win.
1: That is significant.
2: Mm, it is significant. I don't think it's going to be the, oh, Bangladesh are favourites now, Bangladesh are the finalists. But it's good to see that down the pathway, there is a little bit of a narrowing maybe of yeah. like the gap. But
1: We saw it with the, the boys as well yeah. we, a few years ago. Obviously, their are under-19s, won the tournament.
4: Yeah, I was I was going to make the point. I mean, they haven't really kicked on as a as a side since then, have they, as a men's
1: team? I think you've struggled to say that they had, really. Mm.
2: Yeah. I, I don't think it's like massively significant it's still going to be australia india england i reckon as like the three teams to beat but there have been a few tightish kind of games like scotland uae was it didn't really come to fruition but it there was a point where it looked like scotland might beat. Scotland, UAE. South africa as well they scotland, had south, south africa, africa 45 it's quite nice to see some tight close results not between those three teams but obviously you've got india i've got shefali verma Risha gosh that lot in their squad you've got to look at the Australia squad and how much WBBL experience that squad's got England loads of their players have played in the hundred or at least been around hundred sides um, so it's just a massive gap in the experience level between the sides but that's what this tournament is supposed to address so hopefully it might take a few editions of the tournament but I think there are some positive signs that it is going to help with that next level below the professional or international setup in women's cricket, maybe.
4: I see Shafali Verma's been absolutely smashing it in the couple of games he's played. What, what do you think about, is that, because I was trying to work out what I thought about myself, whether it's not quite right that someone who's played at that top level drops down or whether actually, if you're a 18, 19 year old aspiring cricketer from wherever and you get to play against her, what a, what an amazing opportunity and a way to test
1: yourself.
2: I don't know. I've I really flip-flopped on it because it is, it's a really difficult one I don't know whether, obviously it's great to have these players getting experience against the best players in the world. And I think someone made the point yesterday that if you're looking at current form, maybe Risha Gosh is the one to have the conversation around in that India side. But I'm not sure, for example, Zimbabwe are bowled out for 25 by England the other day. How much are you learning from being bowled out for 25, conceding nearly 200 runs? I'm not, I'm not massively sure. But then it's also really difficult to try and put a rule in place around it because if you say if you've got more than 20 international caps you can't be in the under 19 world cup that severely limits the player pool of countries that already have a severely limited player pool and will that actually close the gap i'm not sure england didn't bring even before they got injured they weren't going to bring alice capsey they weren't going to bring freya kempz but their players still have a massive amount more experience than other players so i'm not sure a how you would implement the rule and b whether the rule would be even massively effective in closing that gap. I think India would still be pretty dominant, even without Shivali Verma and, mm. and Risha Ghosh and, and the like. So it's a really, really difficult issue.
3: We we're looking up yesterday that Catherine Fraser, the Scotland captain, is Scotland's leading wicket taker ever in T20i cricket, senior T20i cricket, and she's playing in the 19 World Cup. I think on your point about uh, comparing how how quickly we might see Bangladesh challenge at senior level, I think it is different to a men's... Under-19 World Cup, because if you look back at men's Under-19 World Cups, it can take ages for those players to actually, a lot of those players from one cohort to break into the international setup. Whereas in the women's one already, you've got current internationals, which you don't really have in the men's one. But even even like in the England team, there's no current internationals, but someone like Grace Scrivens probably isn't that far from the England team. Bangladesh are doing well there. Maybe there's the gap between that and the international cricket isn't so big. Just on Bangladesh, I wanted to mention that um, they beat India in a warm-up game uh, just before the tournament. And one of the players who got runs against Australia, Shauna Actor, she only turned 16 this month and scored 78 against India in that warm-up game. Yeah, exciting things from that Bangladesh team.
2: Yeah, but but the whole it's part of this process, isn't it? Like, women's cricketers start very, very young. What Catherine Brunt was, what, 14, 15 when she came into the England side all those years ago? And, like... It's part of the process of professionalism and naturally reordering things so that that doesn't happen because that shouldn't, obviously there are exceptions, but that shouldn't really happen all the time that teenagers are playing. And now that players who are properly adults have that chance, they don't have to have second jobs and they can play cricket for a living, the Under-19 World Cup will take a few additions, but hopefully it will help this process of restoring the balance within international sides that their players aren't massively too young to be playing international cricket and have that opportunity to develop and that will increase the standards. So really good signs, I think, so far from tournament, to be honest.
3: Definitely. Phil and Katya, you weren't on uh, last week's show when we talked about Australia boycotting their upcoming series against Afghanistan. We got um, some constructive criticism about our conversation on it. Some people made the fair point that we talked too much about Cricket Australia's decision rather than what's happening in Afghanistan and to women's cricket In the country, we got a really well thought through email from Nick on the topic. I'm not going to read the whole thing out, um, but I'll read out a section of it. Uh, Part of the regulations of being a full member of the ICC are that you will have a women's side. Before the Taliban took hold, there were steps being made to develop the women's game. That has completely stopped and many women's cricketers had to flee the country to escape persecution following the US withdrawal from the country. Does that mean that Afghanistan should be removed from the test game and much of the progress that has been made being undone? I don't know, but it certainly warrants a discussion. Um, Just on that, uh, although Afghanistan have never completed... or never competed in a full women's international. The Afghanistan Cricket Board did award 25 central contracts in November 2020. So progress was being made not that long before the Taliban took over. And obviously that has been completely halted. We're talking about it again before we started recording today. And it is a very difficult situation. we're actually trying to get an expert from Afghanistan to talk about it. But we weren't able to get one in for this episode. But we will continue to try to do so.
2: It's obviously, it's a massively, massively complicated issue. I went to an equality conference in the summer for the Women's Euros and members of the Afghan women's football team were there who fled the country when the Taliban took over and they told their stories and they were harrowing. And I think what is sometimes forgotten in this conversation is that they don't, they're not just stopping women from being educated. They're not just, you know, stopping them from playing cricket. These women have been actively hunted through the streets with machine guns and that should be at the forefront of every conversation. And what really stood out from that You know, all the statements, everything was that those players weren't mentioned. They weren't mentioned at all. And whether you think it's right that these matches should be a platform for protest or they shouldn't play them whatsoever. When the T20 World Cup happened in Australia, there were no protests when Afghanistan played. There was nothing. So if you're looking at, would you not play the game or would you go and play the game and protest? It's better to not play the game from my perspective than go and play the game and say nothing about it. Whether you think it's going to make change or not, it should be mentioned and it should be brought to people's attention and it should be highlighted that it's just, it's not right at all.
3: Well said. Phil, what's your moment of the week?
1: Um, the In the hours before we went to print, uh, a big article that was due to happen didn't happen and so I brought forward a piece on the explosion in the in the commercial world of women's cricket so I brought that forward and... Did some interviews at the death uh, to try and pull it all together, and it was around the time that news was breaking on the uh, the not the women's IPL because we can't call it that, um, but effectively the women's IPL, um, and the numbers were starting to flood out uh, the the sheer scale of what of what we can look forward to here, uh, and I was writing the piece c- concurrently while also. Taking a look at Twitter and seeing these numbers come through, um, one million dollars per match for the broadcast rights has just been confirmed. Which means each each team will get about three and a half million dollars from the Central Distribution Fund in the first year. That's eighty percent of the revenues uh, that uh, the cut of the revenues.
4: It's five teams in the first.
1: Five teams in the first in the first. The distinct possibility that it will grow from there uh, because bottom line money talks or ru- even money swears and there is a, there is immense uh, interest in in this now and and so I was speaking to a handful of female cricketers and a couple of people as well who involved in the in the administrative side of the game agents and people at the ECB and I spoke to Kate Cross and I spoke to um, Susie Bates. From New Zealand, and they are, if you like, on the they've they've run the full gamut. And I also spoke to Izzy Wong, who's just beginning, just starting off in her story. And it was an interesting um, contrast to speak to Kate Cross, who used to pay her own way, and then speaking to Izzy Wong, who's probably done her fifth interview that week with me, and has come into a culture that is uh, that is preparing itself for this explosion right um uh Beth Wilde who worked Beth Barrett Wild, who works at the ECB said said to me get ready for the shift and she was talking about the IPL the women's IPL um and this sense of an onrushing sh- fundamental existential change in what women's cricket uh how women's cricket sees itself I think is really really taking place before our before our eyes and again to talk to Kate Cross and to to Susie was particularly interesting because they both used the word grateful and to describe how they used to feel and Heather Knight said the same thing to me before as well that we used to feel grateful for the coverage grateful for the support grateful for any remuneration and now that notion uh delivered by the kind of, kind of condescension of the of the establishment has been eliminated or it's in the process of being eliminated and now the women's game doesn't just stand on its own as a as a as, as a great show but as a hugely powerful commercial enterprise in and of itself and it's taken a long time to get to this point but now we are seeing it we are seeing it right in front of our eyes and as soon as the indian market says right We'll have some of this. This is when, as Beth says, prepare for the shift. The you know the the story is going to go through the roof from here on in. Uh, the market is about to explode, and what it means for the likes of Izzy Wong and other young cricketers. You mentioned Verma earlier. Tr- truly transformative for 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 these these athletes now, um, and uh, it's fascinating to 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 watch it play out and to be on the cusp of it I suppose you know and and in, in British sport in particular you know they all mentioned the lionesses and that epoch change that shift in perception but also in the cold hard economics of what you can do now as an individual athlete uh, and so all of this stuff was playing out in literally minutes to go before we went to print and you know, and the magazine editor there would, would have been looking at his watch, and I was trying to get it all done for once, it wasn't my fault. it wasn't Joe. it wasn't my fault. There was other things at play. Um, but then weirdly, Heather Knight texted me um, literally two or three hours before we went to print just as I was finishing this article, and she texted me and she said, "Can we have a chat next week about um, the the possibility or the the inevitability of freelance cricketers moving away from their own uh central contracts?" Uh, national board central contracts and moving to, 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 to a freelance role. As we're seeing increasingly, obviously in the men's game, it's not taking long for the women to, to address the landscape and see that there's, that there are going to be some difficult decisions for them too. Um, and it was just odd that the England captain should happen to be asking me this question at that particular point, just as I'm writing this thing. She's doing a masters on it. She's writing this up herself and. She, the most powerful female figure in English cricket, is wrestling herself with these questions about uh, what this means now and and into the future. So it's a fascinating time for the game. Do you think there'll be quite a lot of
3: pressure on ECB slash the hundred to significantly increase pay?
1: Oh, massively, yeah. And and Beth Barrett Wild, who's very impressive, you know, she's been working at the ECB for ten years and I've known her a bit for ten years, and she was. She's lived this story as well, by the way, because she, 10 years ago, she was helping the girls out. She was putting her hand in her pocket. You know, she was fighting for the scraps in an ECB culture that was leaving the door barely ajar, if not fully shut in her face. And that was 10 years ago. Well, now it's a more enlightened organisation and whether people want to put the boot in or not, that's just the case. Uh, And she absolutely, with her ECB hat on, she acknowledges that that vast and uncomfortable pay disparity in the first year of the 100, slightly recalibrated in the second, but only just, barely, um, uh, will soon come to be uh, an alarming chasm. And if they want to protect their assets, if you like, if you want to kind of reduce it to business language, then, yeah, eventually, this decision is going to have to be taken and they're going to have to get real. I mean, if you want an actual quote, uh, this is from Kate Cross, but Beth was echoing what Kate Cross was saying. Kate, Kate said to me, as you've seen with the lionesses, it does change very quickly, and that gratefulness in inverted commas, of get, <coughs> excuse me, of getting the opportunity and getting paid will turn into, well, hang on a minute. Without women in the hundred, have you got a product? Probably not. I mean, you know, the heart and soul of the, the hundred is driven by by the, the, the females' game, so it might be time to start paying everyone a little bit more fairly. Well, I mean, the, the front. I mean, and that's cent- bang to rights, isn't they,
3: it? They use the women's players as front <coughs> and centre of the marketing of the competition. And, and last season, to be honest, it didn't really feel like the competition had started until the women's competition started. No, indeed,
1: indeed. And, and that was another point that Kate made, Kate Cross made to me that, um, look, she said look, I don't think I deserve 125 grand yet. Being quite upfront about this, she that's her position on it. As a top level England cricketer she doesn't deserve, she doesn't think to be paid the same amount as say, uh, you know Johnny Best, oh well that's a bad example because he didn't actually really play, but you know what I mean. Um, but what they have been begging for for ages is equal opportunities, equal chance to play from a very early age onwards. So what you see still within with, with male cricket is you still get all of those advantages from an early age all the way through the pathways, through the academies. It's still The system is still set up to reward and benefit young male cricketers far more than young female cricketers. And Kate said to me, this is part of an overall fight equality this is one day it's about money but primarily still it's about equal opportunities being given the chance to play and being platformed from an early point in your in your talent path to be given the chance to to be the best you can possibly be
3: and that piece is in the Wisden Cricket Monthly coming out this week. Oh, you got your first
1: good piece in here? First big piece?
3: First Action. good piece. First good, good piece. piece. First good piece. First, first good <laughs> big
1: piece. First sizable piece. It is your best piece. Let's be honest. It's your best piece that you've done for us because it's, it's big and it's long and it's excellent on climate change and how it affects the, uh, the ambitions of county cricket clubs, um, many of whom are pretty, you know, hands-to-mouth, down-at-heel, uh, um, and how the on-rushing climate emergency um presses down upon counties and how some can be a little bit more ambitious than others uh and katcha pulled it all together it is your best piece so far there's some great Mm
3: -hmm. quotes in it yeah i've read it yesterday it's a really good piece we talked about yesterday that there is an absurdity of talking about the climate emergency in the context of division two the county championship for sure
1: will 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 brown pod favorite uh CEO, ceo at gloucester brilliant brilliant bloke um looks a bit like doc cotton in line of duty by the way
2: if you want a nice nugget about gloucestershire and climate change that wasn't in the piece if you go to gloucestershire this year and you get one of the four and sixes signs you can plant them and they'll grow wildflowers. flowers no oh, wow. yeah That's wow crazy. yeah
1: they are the hipsters club as you'd expect from a, from a Bristol club, but they are the hipster's club, Gloucester. If you're looking for a club to support, it would be weird if you are, to be honest, because it's county cricket, it doesn't really work like that. But Gloucester is the hipster's club, the greenest club in the land, as you describe mm. them, catch gotcha.
3: it. Joe, what's your moment of the week?
1: Uh, mine
4: was the uh, came from the mother of all thrashings in the third ODI between India and Sri Lanka. Uh, India won by 317 runs. That's the biggest win in ODI history, comfortably beating the previous record uh, of 290. Uh, The defeat was so bad that Sri Lanka cricket have actually asked the manager of the national team to submit a report (laughs) explaining how it happened, asking for contributions from the captain, head coach, that's Chris Silverwood, in case you've forgotten, the selection panel and the team manager. Uh, They have five days to respond, said the statement on the board's website. (laughs) Which described the, their own team's <laughs> performance as dismal. Um, so don't hold back, Sri Lanka Cricket. Um, uh, but yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> but
1: Big, Big Chris will just say we just didn't execute our plans.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, before Chris Silverwood, I looked it up they've got two months before the next game, so he's probably looking forward to some time off and he's probably had to cancel a holiday or something to, 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 get, put his 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 to get his <laughs> in.
2: Has he now sparked the most rev- most like, reviews in <laughs> international cricket? Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> <important>. <laughs> um,
4: Anyway, the, the match itself, obviously. Uh, rather one-sided but the piece I wanted to pick out from it was was Coley who scored his 46th ODI ton his third in four ODIs having gone what over three years without one Uh, this was his 10th ODI 100 alone against Sri Lanka which is just ridiculous put that in context only four English batters have scored more than 10 ODI 100s across their entire careers against all opposition uh, and Coley's probably got a, f- a few more to come
3: and also this is his first home series against Lanka for something like eight years as well so it's not as if he's actually played that much
4: um, I actually made me think when I was the our list of banned words that we uh, were coming up with like freak is mm. absolutely one that's so yeah. overused but in the case of Coley and ODI cricket he, he like his numbers are freakish compared to did, everyone did else's you, did you
1: do the band words we'll, we'll get lot, we'll
3: yeah. get on, on onto that later as well um, I saw someone on Twitter say how it's quite funny that he switched from not being able to score 100 at all to immediately going back to like peak Coley ODI mode of you're basically surprised if he doesn't get 100
4: and it was the I thought the, the knock itself was actually quite sort of instructive about maybe where he is and what, what he wants and that he's it was 166 off 110 balls eight sixes that's the most he's hit in an ODI and all of them came in the last 10 overs this at a time when he's not made the last three India T20 squads and there's some uncertainty whether this is India heading in a new direction or whether T20 cricket is just bottom of the pile for India's priorities this year it's I think they may be keeping their options open it's probably the latter I think but you know if India's T20 side go really well you know Coley wins the World Cup. Maybe is there no need for him to go back to T20? But Coley doesn't want to give it up, clearly. And it felt like the way this innings unfolded, just going berserk in the last 10, was a little bit of a, look, I can can do this. I can do that. Although Sri Lanka did give quite a helping hand. I think there was a sequence of ridiculous drop catches. Yeah, the wheels came off quite badly in that one.
3: Um, There was some BBL silliness this week. Uh, So there's a rule in the BBL where if the ball hits... The stadium roof, it's six runs no matter where on the roof it's hit. So you just said uh, it's straight up? So basically, there were two instances in one game where the ball went straight up and six runs was, were given. Yeah, that's um, a load of bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> I quite like it. Uh, moving on. Do you? Uh,
4: <laughs> Not really. It's just no, stupid. you don't do it. It's just stupid. But I, <laughs> I like that it's a stupid thing that makes people angry.
3: Matthew asks, a career trajectory I'm keenly following after his incredible relationship with Chris Gale blossoming from his stint at RCB as the youngest ever player to play in the IPL is that of Safraz Khan. He had all the shots even at that time, um, but was like Ollie Pope on acid in terms of his busyness and not knowing which shot to play at which delivery. Now he's got the best ever first-class average after Donald Bradman. Uh, he was presumably close to getting selected for the test squad for the Border Gavaska Trophy. How far can he go? It's a it's a good question. I've kind of been interested by Khan as well. Uh, he wasn't named in the India squad for the series against Australia. For people who don't really know much about him, he's 25 years old, made headlines when he was really young for playing in the IPL when he was 16, I think. But 37 games into his first-class career, he averages 83. He's got 13 first-class hundreds from 36 matches. He's been involved in the India A squad recently, but was overlooked um, for the squad for the Australia series with Surya Kumar Yadav, who's obviously... Don O.K. in international cricket recently getting the nod ahead of him. um Kumoyadev is a teammate of Safraz Khan at Mumbai. Safraz averages about 40 runs more per dismissal in first-class cricket. So I've no idea how he's going to go. Uh, but Shreyas Aya is an injury doubt for that Australia series now. So it's possible that Khan gets in, in- instead of him. Joe, as, as we mentioned a couple times on the show, there's a new magazine out this week aside from... The stuff we've already mentioned. We talked about the Ponting interview last week. Uh, what's in it?
4: Um, the cover story is a really good piece from John Stern, which is looking at uh, England's win in Pakistan, which actually already feels a while ago. But he's he's trying to put it in historical context, looking at where it sits in the all-time list of England overseas victories, and also looking at the way in which they played and, and looking back at Benno's Australia and the fact that entertainment is often. Uh, more important than the result in some ways in this case the result came came with it as well uh so it's really uh, it's a interesting take from john he's done it really really well and that's the cover story of the very nice cover that phil's already shown you uh yeah we talked about ponting we talked about uh phil's piece on the the business or industry of women's cricket Uh, just the pieces that i did have just popped into mind i right we've got the test 11 as well i've got the test 11 um so
3: you've got your annual catch-up with craig white
4: annual catch-up with craig white he's doing well good to check in (laughs) um and so that was a, a look back at his career in our cricket life series um good bit of nostalgia in there he says when he started playing test cricket for England he was considered a there was uh accusations of favoritism because Ray, Inworth, Ray Illingworth uh was the England selector obviously big Yorkshire man Craig White was playing for Yorkshire had only just started bowling pace about two months earlier and suddenly he's in the England test side which White admits he was not ready for and said Atherton made no secret at all of the fact that he did not want White in his side and would sort of bring him on after 55 overs and say, get Lara out when he's on 130, which obviously he did later in the in his career. Um, lots of nice stuff in there if you are into your 90s pathos stories of, of English cricket and then the, the turning period of the 2000 series against West Indies. Uh, another interview that I did, which is going to stay in my mind for a long time, was um, part of the series that I'm doing on um, being the parent of international cricketers, so I've done The Butchers, uh, I did uh, Mo and Ali's dad Munir, and then this month I did. I spoke to John Holyoake, who's the father of Adam and Ben, um, who made their test deb- debuts for England together in 1997 to learn more about where those two came from, um, where their natural talents lie, whether it was going to be cricket all the way through. But obviously, it, most listeners will know the story that Ben tragically died uh, only a few years after making his test debut and is kind of one of those what if stories, no one knows what he might have gone on to become. And I was a little bit hesitant about getting in touch with John because it is still, even twenty years later, clearly still raw and difficult um thing for him to talk about. Uh and he was amazing. I mean he was so candid. Uh it was really quite an emotional conversation. He actually said at the end, like I'd been dreading doing this, but I think he felt that there was a bit of kind of Catharsis and in, in, in talking about it, and also he wants people to, you know, remember Ben and remember how good he was. And it's clear from the the t- stories he tells about Ben as a kid, he was kind of a, a preternaturally talented kid, amazing at everything he did, took it all in his stride. Um, I spoke to his older brother Adam for the piece as well, who's got a fascinating story in himself and played a big part in English cricket, certainly here at Surrey you know, we're talking about aggressive captaincy and, and dictating the way a game was played. Well, Holyoke did that uh, a long time before that was kind of fashionable in English cricket. So there's lots in there. I'd um, Yeah, I'd love people to read it because John put a lot of uh, heart and soul into it. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope he's pleased with the piece as well.
3: That sounds amazing. Look forward to, to reading
1: that. One, one last thing, there's a nice piece from Liam Brickhill who is a writer based in Zimbabwe. Um, piece entitled The Team That Wouldn't Die. And he's spoken to Davy Houghton, the inspirational coach behind their rebirth, and uh, Sikandar Raza, of course, their key man, their key player. Uh, and it's a really encouraging story, rousing story, I think, for the world game, really, that you have this, this this cricketing culture that was on its knees a while ago, not too long ago, mired in all kinds of corruption claims and, and mismanagement at top level, uh, and a player drain. Um, and now it's, it's thriving again with a, you know, a beautifully diverse and varied collection of good cricketers. Um, and he does it really, really beautifully. So it's a really, it's a, there's a lot of good writing in this issue and he does it really well. I want to say again, to anyone who's listening still or watching, um, you can get it digitally. If you, if you don't want to shell out on a print copy, then you can get it digitally dead easy, couple of quid, very cheap. Very nice, very rewarding. Wherever you are in the planet, on the planet, you can get hold of it.
3: Yeah, so if you head to WCMDigi.com, you can get an annual digital subscription for 24 quids. That's £2 per issue. Um, and if we can't convince you to buy the magazine, here is a, an email we got the other day from Steve, who says, I just bought the January edition of Wisden Cricket Monthly, having not purchased a cricket magazine for years. Your mag is a thing of beauty. Okay, you had nice timing. The reason I sought you out is because of the T20 World Cup win and the epic first test victory in Pakistan. But the feature on Sussex is fascinating. And the interview with Joe Root is a fabulous celebration of our greatest batsman. So respect to you all with an extra little nod to chief designer Joe Provis. I realise these things are a team game, but the magazine is beautifully laid out and designed. It could be used as a case study to train any young editor or designer. I look forward to February's edition given England's continuing exploits. Nice work, team, and thanks for an inspiring read. I love Steve. Steve. Sounds almost too
4: good to be true, doesn't it? But that is a genuine email. We did actually receive that email. Thanks, Steve.
3: Yeah, and, and we should also mention the coaching section as well, which as people go back to winter nets over the next week or so, a reminder that you can get in touch. How do you get in touch? Email your-
1: editorial at wisdom.com is the, is the best way of doing it. But if you, uh, want to t- if you want to tweet us as well, it's fine. This month, we had Mark Rambrakash on bat speed and your shrub soul on controlling the swing, particularly in swing, problem that you have, Yes. And John Simpson um, on glove work. They are three of the what twelve strong coaching team that we've Something got like that. going. We've got like Lydia that. Greenway, Keaton
4: Jennings, Matt Parkinson, Ollie Pope, Toby Radford, Alex Tudor. Um, so whatever you need, we've we've got someone who can answer your query.
3: You can write out an email. You can send in a video. Um, all of that is welcome. Two weeks ago, Phil asked for words and phrases that you wanted banned. Um, I don't think, of worms. I don't think Phil listened to last week's episode. He doesn't uh, listen if he wasn't on it. That's, okay. that's the rule. Um, I do sometimes. Okay. Bits of it. Phil didn't get to the end of last week's podcast where <laughs> we went start. through the uh, list of banned words. Uh, I, I'm i not sure how much it will surprise you, but you were the target of, of most of them. Mm. Um, sure. So I thought we'd end today's pod with a nice message we got about Phil
1: for one of our listeners. No, we, no, no, don't do that. No, I, I, don't, I don't need that. You know, I'm down in the gutter anyway, that's fine. <laughs> is, is you you not, don't have to do that. No, I, I have I, I've be not been unaware of certain, certain targeted um, volleys uh, in my direction, and that's fine. I think there's a lot of warmth in those volleys. No, no, no. Uh, but, but there was one which I will defend to my deathbed, yep. and it's strumming, because it's a catchphrase. It's a catchphrase, right? It's also a beautiful word, and it does the job succinctly and I'm not always known for my brevity strumming I will protect and cherish until the day I die whoever sent that one in now nah, well, this did pop up last week um, yeah.
3: <laughs> I am going to read out this nice email uh, so this is from Salman uh, who on YouTube commented great pod as always guys I'm a doctor and a sports tragic from Lahore and your weekly podcasts are the thing I look forward to the most the entire week I discovered you guys during the early days of COVID and have been hooked ever since Phil's description of Babur Azam's century after the New Zealand game in the 2019 World Cup are still my favourite words anyone has ever said about a cricketer. <laughs> I listen I mean, to it ludicrous. at least once a month. <laughs> 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 Thanks, mate. Uh, Phil's my favourite and it would be nice if you guys could feature my comment in next week's episode. It will give me more motivation to write. Emails. Salmon, Yeah, Salmon.
1: Salmon, you're one of your own, no. mate. One of your own. Thank um, you, my friend. What is glorious And, it, to and if people
3: haven't uh, have, have started listening to the podcast since then. So we did World Cup dailies in the 2019 World Cup and uh, our staffing schedule was a little bit all over the place so we had to be creative about how we were doing certain episodes. So after the, the Babrazam Azam century at New Zealand I think Phil did like a five minute monologue at the start of one episode about Babrazam's century before he talked to someone else. I can't remember. But really he did remember. have a
1: guest. This was purely optional. <laughs> was he? <laughs> yeah. No, I did. Uh, Andrew Wilson, <laughs> yeah. okay. the, the, the esteemed okay. New Zealand cricket writer. And I said, I said to bit. him it's not impossible that I had taken a drink that evening. It was a okay. Saturday night. And I said to him beforehand, I've got a thing on Baba. Uh, do you mind if I, you know, indulge me? And he said, you know, he's a New Zealander, so he's very relaxed about yeah. it. He said, that's fine. Nice um, man in cricket journalism. Yeah, Lucky you had him on with you. He's I think a lot of people wouldn't have put
4: up with <laughs> <Yeah>. that.
3: <laughs> um, anyway, I think that's enough for today's show. Cheers, Katya. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll be back next week.
0: Podcast Network.